Let me ask you guys something. Whatever happened to predictability? There must be some magic clues inside these gentle walls. Sometimes you get a feeling like you need some kind of change. I don't get any of those references. But each week on Talking Sit, Silas P. and a guest do a deep dive and raise up the sitcoms that raised us. Did Mr. Belvedere really sit on his balls? Why do people call him Uncle Joey when he wasn't related to the Tanners? And does anyone else remember Head of the Class? Find out each week on Talking Sit with Silas P. everyone welcome to get in the garage i am mike here once again with luke and jeff what's up guys how you doing great doing awesome man happy uh taking a trip to soulsville usa yeah man yeah yeah well as the greyhound as part of our um our series that we're going to start this month being that it's black history month uh we're going to be highlighting a lot of like african-american black american music uh throughout history especially you know, uh, from the 1950s on, I think, pretty much. Or at least, at the very least, like, 1900s, because, you know, I'm sure we'll cite, like, early blues music and stuff like that as well. But as our first episode, we are going to be telling the the tale of uh, Stax. Um, and what a tale it is, man. I, like, the more I got oh, into it. what a tale. The more I got into it, man, it's like, holy shit, it's crazy, man. It's, what it a wild ride. Crazy. What a wild ride. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking about it. There are, are there's so many there's so many ways that it's kind of intertwined in like the fabric of just American history as well as music history. So I think it's a great t- topic to start off on. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of things happening at Stacks while simultaneously happening during like the civil rights movement and stuff. It's all kind of happening around that same time period. Um, so it's very interesting. And I think. Let's just uh, jump right into it, shall we? Right on, um, baby. So Stacks, I mean, originally Satellite Records, but I kind of wanted to go back a little bit. I don't want to spend too much time on kind of the origin story between Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton, but I think it is important just to mention the fact that, like, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton, they're siblings. Um, Jim Stewart is, like, a banker. He had been to business school. He was thinking about pursuing, like, a law degree. Likewise, Estelle Axton was a school teacher, then started working in banking. But they came from, like, a, a small town, man. Like, they came from just a sort of, like, small country town in Tennessee. And what's really interesting, and I think it's worth mentioning, is the fact that, like, the unfortunate kind of became a fortunate in the way that, like, you know, they came from this small town, man. So, like, they, they were... They were kind of like poor white people. And like, let's face it, you're talking Tennessee at a certain time and space, like before, I mean, it's not even, it's even for now, there's racism in Tennessee, like never mind at the time that they were born. But like, you know, I think at that time, because they were poor white people and most Southern black Americans at the time were also very much living in poverty, they sort of bonded and 
you know, they realize the importance of like, hey, these are still people like we all have to help each other out here because we're all kind of fucked, you know. And, um, you know, that is kind of the foundation that's laid down that they're that they're working with that I think would cause a ripple effect, you know, uh, later on in terms of them not, you know, not really having any issues with racism within within the Stacks records, you know, especially at that time, you're talking post Great Depression uh, growing up just during World War Two. So there's a lot of economic strife in the country. So it was a it was a big period where um, kind of like integration was almost forced in the working class because you had to have a job in a factory with other people who were from different backgrounds than you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what like they really had to rely on each other in that way. And also not only that, but like I think that like they come from a family that's really like like a like a good Southern Christian family that's really doing it the way they're supposed to be doing it. You know what I mean? I mean, I think a lot of like the Southern Christian mentality, especially from the white perspective, would could almost like, you know what I mean? Like kind of abuse the power of like the Christianity and use it in a way that's kind of like domineeringly white or whatever. But they they were raised in such a way that said, yeah, man, like racism is wrong like this the, these are still people they're still children of god in other words so you know what i mean that 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 racism was never really a thing i'm sure they had it around them but for them internally they never you know they never really had race like a racist bone in their body you know so i think that's an interesting point that mike is is setting out that these uh people were tolerant that started this company and i think because of their tolerance was what made them so successful because they were yeah. able to um, create a working environment for their musicians that was just about great music, and I feel like that model, it was was the success point of that model. So, how did it get started, Michael? Like, why did these people start to make records to begin with? Right. So, it's actually pretty crazy. You can almost, you can like almost credit Stacks, Satellite, initially whatever, to uh, to Jim Stewart's barber, right? So, like. Jim Stewart's basically like, you know, he's doing this thing. He's working in bank. He's got a business. You know, he went to school for business, whatever. He's thinking about pursuing law. One day he's sitting in a barbershop and the barber's basically talking to him. And he's like, hey, man, like if you're looking to make some extra coin, like you should just like start just record music in your spare time and own the whole key, though, is is own the publishing rights. Right. Because no matter what, things can get messed up with distribution. Things can get messed up in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of moving hands in the music industry. But if you own the publishing, you're pretty much all right. Like, you'll always at least make something, in other words. So Jim Stewart's like, well, fuck, man. Like, that's actually not a half bad idea. So he gets the idea to do it. And then he ends up approaching his sister, Stell Axton. And she ends up remortgaging her home to fund this business venture with him. They get an Ampex uh, 300 tape recorder. And they basically just set up shop. I think it's Brunswick, Tennessee in 1959. And it's kind of like this little rinky-dink studio that's like set up in a garage kind of thing kind of haphazardly thrown together um and then what happens is is in walks uh chips moment and he's kind of like the i I believe he's like the producer slash engineer for the first sort of musical thing that happens at one point jim stewart does get together with a couple of his musician friends and they do record a track. I can't remember. It was like the one thing that I forgot to freaking write down, of course. But it wasn't really, it didn't really come to anything anyway. You know what I mean? It was basically like a test thing. But it was sort of like this uh, this country sort of thing. Because Jim Stewart played fiddle. 
And that was really what Stax was supposed to be. Stax was supposed to be like this sort of radio country popish kind of label that they wanted to produce. I mean, but little did they know they would become obviously like the the most one of the the highest R and B you know selling and producing uh, record labels. So anyway, they get the Veltones to come out and record the song "Fool in Love" uh, in 1959, and. That song was dope, man. Like, I listened to that, and it's so, like, it's it reminds me so much of, like, a 1950s prom. It's, like, super, like, doo-woppy, and, like, it's got this, in the beginning, it's got this, like, really weird, like, wiggly guitar. It's like, it almost reminds me of um, uh, White Album, fucking, uh, like, Wild Wild. Honey Pie. It's got that kind of, like, weird, like, elastic-sounding guitar in there. (laughs) Yeah. Jeff, Jeff, did you have, you had something to... No, I just wanted to uh, restate. You said earlier, but at this time, the label is not called Stax. It's Satellite Records for the first uh, like four-ish years. Right. So right. just in case people, you know, get a little confused, I'm going to throw in my little point points and actualies at times. Yeah. No. No. For <laughs> so real. Yeah. Yeah. Please. But yeah, just to restate, it's, it's Satellite Records at this time. And yes. uh, so the beginning too is uh, pretty much. Porter, so he comes in and like really pushes the soul David music at Porter. Part. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And then I think I really think like the big break for them that happens is is like Rufus and Carla Thomas end up coming in. Rufus had already, I believe, had already recorded a successful album with Sam Phillips at Sun Records, and then he ends up coming over to then Satellite with Carla Thomas, and they record the song "Cause I Love You," which I mean, father like, and daughter as well. Yeah, father and daughter. Um, it's cool because, like, I feel like if you A, B, like, fall in love with Cause I Love You, there's, there's like, it's, like, a totally different vibe, man, because the Rufus and Carla Thomas song, uh, it's got, it kind of has, like, those early, like, super strong horns that you would kind of come to love that Stax would always give you these great big horn kind of sounds, and it's way more groovy. It's got more of that kind of earthy feel, you know what I mean, in comparison to, um the Veltones tune and that's kind of where the ball starts rolling man um they 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 catch the eye of Atlantic Records Jerry Wexler uh the Atlantic thing the ball kind of starts rolling yeah Jerry Wexler who it's crazy because it's like he did so many good things but he also is just kind of like the epitome of like that piece of shit record executive kind of an excellent businessman we'll say yeah Yeah. right but not a good not really a good person (laughs) So at the insistence of, of David Porter, who would become to be known later as one of the big sticks in Stacks, they do start recording Rufus Thomas and Carla Thomas. Yeah. Um, they are an independent record label at this point, but Carla Thomas ends up getting picked up by Atlantic. Um, so Atl- that's when Atlantic really starts pecking in, like Mike said, to Stacks because they realize that they have a unique sound going on and they're starting to produce a great artist in Carla Thomas. So uh, she actually gets picked up at that time by Atlantic and um, Atlantic at that time, I believe gets first uh, distributing rights. So if Stax wants to release something nationally, uh, Atlantic says yes or no, and then they end up pushing it or not pushing the product out. So that was one of the big things at that point too. And while we're talking about the unique sound, um, so Satellite Records was around for two, three years, and then in 1960, they moved to where they would be located for the duration of the time the record label was around, which was uh, 926 East Macklemore Avenue in Memphis. Yep, the and Capitol Theater. It was, 
Right. It was a converted movie theater. So they ripped all the seats out and they would record in the big movie theater room, which had like the sloped floor where the seats had been. So it has this like sound where it's still small and boxy, but it doesn't sound like that Motown stuff, which was in a small room. It still has some natural space because of the shape of the room. So that was like a big part of the, of the uh, Memphis soul stack sound. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like around that, like Jeff said too, with that sound, I was listening in headphones to a lot of stacks records, uh, today and yesterday, and you could so hear the natural, like echo slapback slope, like on the dome, dome, if it's like ever like exited on the two or whatever, you just hear it slap back. Um, yeah. it's such a fascinating sound. If you want, yeah. I feel like an exaggerated sound of a box. If you've ever listened to, uh, like the boxiest sound I've ever heard is, um, the Rolling Stones bootleg liver than you'll ever be. It's got the same kind of boxy sound, but the it's so much more full in the stacks one. It's a it's a great, great, great sound. Yeah. And also uh another key factor to this new setup at the at the new spot is that um Estelle Axton is now running. So they not only did they convert the theater aspect of it into a studio, but then the what was the lobby of the theater is now a record store. So you're getting all this rotation of all these people coming in and out of the record store. And inevitably, musicians kind of meander on in. They're like, hey, what's going on? I heard you got a recording studio in the back. And also speaking to just kind of the overall sound, in come the marquees. Like, and the thing about them was, looking it up, dude, they, you, do you know, what the, you know what they were called before? They were called the marquees? Oh, called- I did know. They were called the Royal Spades. Right. And although I'm pretty sure that the, the, the origin to the name was something that was, you know, was not ill-intended in, ill-intended in that way. Do you know what I'm saying? I think it really had to do with something with, like, poker or something like that. Like, it actually right. had to do with cards. But, um, you know, you can't deny the fact that around the time, it's kind of has some racial undertones to it. And Estelle accident put the kibosh on that pretty early on yeah because it can be marketed as like you said it was the poker term but in a way it's kind of like this like it's a derogatory thing and it's complimentary at the same time so it's a little right. like tongue-in-cheek but yeah at, for a fledgling record label she just thought like that's a terrible idea because like people who get the joke will get it but the vast majority of people will just like hold, cling on to that and they'll just use that against them yeah, and not for nothing, but, I mean, they were some young kids that were in high school at the time. And, like, let's be real, the sound that they're mimicking is the sound of, like, the Black American sort of horn groups and bands right. and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where you're like... Right, because at like, this you time... You get it, but you're like, eh, it's yeah, not a little unsavory. At this time, it was predominantly white musicians in the Marquis roster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. Um, I mean, but so Charles Packy... Um, yeah, Axton, he was Estelle Axton's son, right? So he go, he approaches the Marquis and he's like, hey, guys, like, <clears throat> I want to try to audition for your band. He played tenor sax. And they're like, no, nah, we're not really looking for you, bro. And he's like, well, my aunt kind of has this record label thing going on. And they're just like, all right, yeah, we'll see you next, you know, we'll see you on Saturday, whatever. Long story short, they end up going in and in walks along with, you know, I mean, uh, with the Marquis, like, you would end up seeing a lot of, like, lineup changes in terms of who comes in and plays, say, horns and stuff like that but i mean steve cropper is the guitar player uh who would end up becoming like a real integral part to the Sistax. at one point he works in a and r for them he's doing production stuff for them he becomes a songwriter for i mean he kind of like does a little bit of everything although i will say 
the the single that the Marquis release called Last Night, which is funny because that's like the song that kind of put the Marquis on the map a little bit. But Steve Cropper didn't even actually play guitar on that. Mm. He played like second keyboards or something like that, you know. Um, so I thought that was, you know, that was definitely um, that was definitely interesting. And um, so. You also get Carla Thomas's G Wiz that comes out in 61. And what's cool about that tune, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure Booker T is playing horns on that. Yeah, I think he, he's he playing plays sax, ba- right? Very sax. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Um, and from what I know, too, I want to say, I think the way that Sam, I'm sorry, that Jim Stewart noticed Steve Cropper and Booker T was they were doing a session for Sam Phillips at Sun Records and Jim Stewart just happened to be in the control room and was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm basically going to steal these guys, you know. He, uh, and he then heard Lars- them playing the riff to Green Onions and went, that's, that's great. And then took them back to the stacks to record that. Right. Right, right. So, so now, you know, we, here we have Satellite. You know, they're, they're getting some, some, some pretty decent success. You know, they have Atlantic distributing behind them and all that stuff. Uh, turns out there's another Satellite Records, and they're like, hey, guys, you can't use our name. So, so very cleverly, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton, um, basically, they take the ST from Stewart and the AX from Axton, and that's how we get stacks. There's a word for that. It's uh, portmanteau. Portmanteau. Thank you. Yeah, I wrote it down because I was like, oh, I got to remember that. So... So thus we have like, you know, Stax, um, Stax is born. Steve Cropper starts working on A&R. And then really, this is where we kind of get the classic lineup for Booker T and the MGs. And then eventually the big six. So we have David Porter and Isaac Hayes as the predominant songwriters. Um, Chips ends up leaving in 61, right? Yeah, Chips Mormon leaves in like 1961. Uh, so that's where Steve Cropper takes over, like, the A&R duties and stuff. But we have Booker T, Donald Duck Dunn, who ends up coming in on bass and replacing uh, Louis Steinberg. Uh, and then Al Jackson Jr. comes in on drums, man. And we've got Booker T and the MGs. We've got the big six. This is the classic lineup. Uh, and this is really where, like, the ball gets rolling for stacks, you know. And um, 61, they also create the Volt sister label as well uh and uh in comes in 62 in comes what would end up being their star uh their star artist yeah it's kind of interesting the the vault uh point where they have stacks records and then they create vault records and like other labels did that at the time as a way to get around these like non-compete clauses at radio stations yeah and like not to saturate the market and be like well, have disc jockeys be like another Stax record? Like we are already playing fifteen of their things. We don't want to play more. So they have Stax and Volt under the same house with the same musicians playing all the tracks. Just yeah. like how Motown had Motown and Tamla, like yeah. or Atlantic had Atlantic and Atco. It's like all these, all these like kind of shady business operation things in the yeah, music industry man. where they're just like we're going to pretend like it's not all the same people playing on these records and we're just going to put it out under different names. Stacks, I mean Stacks would go on to 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 create so like so many more underneath them anyway. Like they ended yeah, up little subsidiaries. Up in, like, yeah, yeah, like a little they would have like a gospel uh, right. label and then they ended up having like a country label. Yeah. So it's it's definitely interesting to kind of look and see in contrast how the 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 record industry has changed 
from yeah. then compared to now and the way that, uh, that's, you know. That's so much, Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I'll give you that. In, in some instances, yeah, no. Yeah. But in other instances, That was yeah. like the beginning of that kind of stuff going down. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like Mike was saying, too, uh, basically Booker T and the MGs get through stacks because uh, they get no just playing a Green Onions riff and they bring them in to record uh, a song like that, right? So that's basically how you get that great backing band at Stax, and then at the time too, um, like Mike was saying, uh, oh, just Redding shows up at mm-hmm. Stax, um, only as a he was driving uh, somebody who he was yeah. working with as a musician, like in a live band setting. Johnny to, Jenkins, a yeah. guitar player who was like hot on like the Macon, Georgia scene at the time. Yeah, so they brought them to Stax to record, uh, but that guy didn't have his driver's license, I think. So Otis Redding drove him there. Um, and they were finished with the, that dude's session. Otis was like, you got to hear me sing, man. You got to hear me sing. You got to hear me sing. And they're like, what are you even talking about? All right, whatever. So like, get out of here, Rody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they gave him an opportunity to sing. And um, I believe that song is uh, These Arms of Mine, right? Yep. And um, literally. Booker T wasn't even there. Did you know that? Booker T had already left. Yeah, and he'd probably already been there for twelve hours that day. So yeah, but at the end of the session, you get uh, Steve Cropper on piano and uh, Otis Redding singing, and it's literally the first time Otis is ever on the mic at Stax Records, and you get to hear it, and it's like the single that was released. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever listened to. It's so like it's so cool because it's literally a dude like making his own future and on the spot and you get to hear that moment on a record it's one of the most amazing things i've ever heard the only time it's possibly happened in history yeah the guy was like just yeah. give me the mic and everybody's like uh okay and like really the he's the star of stacks he oh yeah and like i mean mike's gonna probably detail some of his like future but he's one of he's so the integral part and ends up i think kind of being like the soul and spirit of the record label yeah what's up jeff yeah before we go on to otis because that's gonna be you know like you said he's their big name can we talk a little bit about just the stack sound in Absolutely. general and like the components of it and what differentiates it from other other uh labels and groups at the time yeah please do because that's very important to the story so like a big thing, because people talk about 60s soul music, you have two big stables. You have the Motown sound and then you have the Stax sound are like the two kind of opposite ends of things. Because Motown is very like the drum beat is a lot of like snare drum on every beat. It's a lot of tambourine. It's a lot of acoustic piano. It's a lot of harmonized horn parts and uh, like groups that were like five singers. Whereas the Memphis sound, that Southern soul sound, was instead of a lot of acoustic piano, it was a lot of organ, bringing that Southern gospel feel in. It was a lot more of backbeats instead of straight on the, every beat with the snare. It was a lot more of that, what we would call like a, the groove sound. Um, the, they had horns as well, but instead of doing these like three-part chord horn parts, it would be a lot of like just unison or octave blasts and lines together so it's just more of like a punching melody of horns instead of like these big chord things of horns and uh so and also guitar wise like the motown stuff was what i would not i would characterize as amplified guitar versus the stack stuff which was in my mind electric guitar because you know you had it was electric guitar motown but it was a lot of jangly stuff or simple lines 
And then the Motown stuff, they had more kind of slightly distorted guitar and kind of that, that uh, like searing, cutting country kind of sound of guitar. Mm. I also would note to that too, like Jeff was saying with the singers, uh, uh, Stax singers got that, have that grittier voice where the Motown is, like he was saying, is more polished, but they're singing like in a grittier rate, even like right. Carla Thomas, like do is more grittier and that, mm. that, that kind of style emphasis. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say more emphasis on the one, right? Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> emphasis yeah. on the one and, and more of like call and response kind of blues type vocals mm-hmm. between the mm-hmm. lead singer and the backing singer. Whereas the Motown stuff was a lot of, full harmonized vocals like through the whole chorus would be like harmonized with three part harmony mm. and the motown i mean the stack stuff was much more southern gospel style of singing yeah and i i would say too like the the style of stacks was like almost the uh what do i want to say like almost they they were do they everybody copied them afterwards like they created that oh yeah the souls kind of sound in that incubated space and by having the same backing band uh, as Booker, with Booker T and the MGs, it created that equal space of like every the records had a consistency that sounded the same in the same way that Motown would, but in a completely different style. Right. Mo- Motown had the Funk Brothers backing band, you know, the stable of musicians. But yeah, Mo- like you have to think at the time. So go back to like 1963 and every what we'd all now all call all of that music we'd call it 60s soul or something like that in that day the motown stuff was much more doo-wop indebted and like pop music like very poppy whereas the stack stuff is so that was soul music that was that was black music you know at the time compared to the motown stuff it was much more of a blacker sound if you're talking about the white audience at the time and what they wanted to buy and stuff like that and mm-hmm. how they marketed things. Yeah. And I think another thing that was unique to them too, was the way that they would record um, in that it was very much like this one take type deal. Like everybody has to kind of be on the same, you know what I mean? Like everybody's playing on the same take. Let's all knock it out in one shot. And if one person messes up, it's kind of like you have to redo, like the entire band has to re- redo the song Rather than this sort of, you know, I mean, I think the Ampex, I think that was a, that I think that was a one track. Eventually, they did end up upgrading to a two track recording system as well. But even still, two tracks when you're talking about horns and drums and every like everything that's on these songs, two tracks is still not. You know, I mean, two is better than one, but it's not by any means. Yeah, this is you know what I mean. It's not the eight track recording right. that you'd get later on. You know, like that's why to me personally, nothing beats the soul music from Stax and Motown of this time because of that fact, like it was everybody going full bore, like full energy and concentration and performance. And you just had to capture the magic all at once. Right, right, right. And I would definitely say a good healthy competition too, between, between peers. Cause if you think about at the time, man, you, you know, you got the wrecking crew in California, you got, you know, I mean, you got Detroit, you got, I mean, I think, I don't know what time muscle shoals, I don't know what time the Swampers come into the picture exactly, but it's about the same time, about the same time. But so, you know, but that was mainly to Mike's point of, of Muscle Shoals. That was mainly brought in by Atlantic because Stack's refusal to be copycatted. They said, no more. We're not, you're not coming to use our studio. Right, right. And that would have happened as a result of a falling out with Wilson Pickett, which we'll get into. We'll get into in a little bit here, but just to talk, 
Uh, just to talk on Otis, man. I mean, you know, I think there's certain things where it's like you look back and you listen to the story and stuff and you're like, oh, it was written in the stars. You know what I mean? Like it was just it was meant to happen. And I definitely think that with Otis Redding, uh, that is 100 percent true, man. I mean, not only when you hear like these arms of mine, but like um, uh, like this song I list well, one song that I really like, I think is a standout song, uh, Mr. Pitiful from the album, like the great Otis Redding sings soul hits. I think it's called Soul. I can't read my own writing, but um, that was in 65. But basically, if you look at it, man, like the early 60s really is, is just Stax is just pumping out fucking music. They are like a hit factory. And unfortunately, Motown at the time was called Hitsville, USA. But this is in response to it. You get Stax calling themselves Soulsville, USA. And this is where Stax really becomes Stax. And Otis Redding is just driving the front on this whole thing. I mean... You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of moving, you know, moving parts here. Um, in 1965, you get Al Bell comes in. Uh, he's like a local DJ that Jim uh, that Jim Stewart meets, and then Al Bell comes in and pretty quickly moves up the ranks. You know, and he was a big figure because before joining Stax in '65, he was a DJ in Little Rock, Arkansas, which was a major media market there in the mid south that would be able to reach people in the Oklahoma area, in Northern Texas, in Louisiana. So he was kind of like sending out through the sound waves, the, the stack stuff for the five years before he joined the label uh, officially. Right. Right. And he, and I mean, you know, if we want to tie it back into, you know, racial issues and stuff like that. I mean, if you ever listen to an Al Bell interview, he talks about it and he's like, he actually had like some dude come up to him and be like, you know, the only thing that African-Americans are good for is like singing and dancing or whatever. And, and Al, Al Bell, Bell was really... black, just for people who don't know. Right. Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. I should have mentioned that. Um, but Al Bell talked about taking something that was intended to be a negative stereotype and turning it around, man, and making making something happen. He was just like, I should say, I mean, is black. You're... He's still alive. Yeah. He is. <laughs> um, uh you know, basically just taking something negative and twisting it into a positive man. And he's just like, no, fuck. All right, fuck you then. Like, uh, let me show you what, what we can do with singing and dancing. And that's really where, you know, he signs on with Stax. And I feel like he is definitely a driving force behind Stax. Uh, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, like Mike was saying, too, with Al Bell comes in, he, there's definitely more of a uh, consciousness to show that, one stacks was, um, you know, they got along together. You had uh, white and black people getting along, making music together uh, at in Booker T and the MGs, and and that thing. And also, Al Bell brings in more of a um, uh, a consciousness of what was going on in the civil rights movement and the direct what was going on with uh, Martin Luther King. And in step, stacks begins with their artists to try to represent that movement. Um, even here on the uh, King and Queen album. Um, with Carla Thomas and Otis Redding, um, they did uh, that album together. Uh, they had a senator write the the liner notes from Tennessee, um, and this was a way to I I feel to make them um, to show the good things that they were doing for their community and their state and their country and the people, mm -hmm. um, and it showed a sort of black pride that I think you know what I mean was for for white people to see that was important. You know what I mean? Cause this is a really yeah. important music and that kind of like legitimized 
within step with uh, Martin Luther King and got kind of more people involved, I think. It was just interesting that I saw that yesterday. Yeah, and like you said, the the fact that Stax was integrated with their musicians, like 1962, Green Onions came out. It was a number three on the Billboard Hot 100. And Booker T. Jones and Al Jackson Jr. Black and Louis Steinberg and Steve Cropper were white. And so they were like all over the place, this band where it, was, it wasn't even the fact of, well, yeah, they're a black band with a white guy or they're a white band and they allow black guys in. It was like, no, this is an equal partnership. And like music is about the music. It's not about like what you look like. It's about how you feel and what you create. Yeah, man. And, and even to speak to Al Bell, like the relationship with Al Bell and um, Jim Stewart, like uh, there's this book that's great that I'm, I'm, about, I'm about halfway through. Uh, it's called Respect Yourself, and it's all about the stacks, you know, and all that. And uh, Booker T, I think Booker T writes the foreword for it. And he makes a comment about the fact that, yeah, like when you walked into the office, Jim Stewart and Al Bell shared a desk. They shared everything. They shared a phone. And it's, it's, it's amazing to think, but it's also just so incredibly sad to think, right, that the, that the most profound thing that happens that's witnessed is Al Bell talks on a phone. And looks at Jim Stewart and says, oh, hey, they want to talk to you. And Jim Stewart takes the phone. And the move that, like, everyone's like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. The mind blower is the fact that Jim Stewart didn't clean the fucking receiver off, man. And first of all, how sad is it that that's the thing? But also, what a, what a, what a, like, a, what a instance that you can take that you can kind of use as the metaphor, really, for what Stax was doing at the time. Which was basically just kind of like, yeah, you know, like we're all people like why why would we you know what i mean like right why why would we treat people like you know what i mean so i don't know i just i love that i think it's uh, like i said it's it's very sad but it's also uh, a great sentiment i think to show just the fact that you know like we've how we've always been talking about music man is that music is so much further it's so much bigger than everything else and it can really you know be the thing that transcends all these sort of cultural and societal hangups that we all have, you know? And it's like, it's just, it's just a beautiful thing, man. Right. It's a beautiful thing. And we're talking, this is in Memphis, Tennessee, which, you know, it's not the deep South. They call it the mid South, but it's still very much the South. And at that time it was have it was terrible race relations in that city, which is a predominantly black city. It's, I don't know what, right. it, I believe the demographics at the time were similar to how they are today, which is, it's about two thirds black population, one third white population. So right. to see like the leading cultural figures in your city can get along and work together and share an office and swim in the same swimming pool and invite their families over for dinner and all those things. It like, it speaks volumes to how you can progress things from being this negative, hateful place and letting music be the common denominator that joins people together and pushes things forward. Absolutely. That's that exactly what I, I, I feel like all these things end up, you know, that's what really is the, one of the most different things about them. I don't think anybody was really acting like that at the time. And the, the music I think is, you know, direct reflection. You have so many, you know good songs coming out at the time because i feel like people were working together in their best way um yeah so at that time too so we got kind of like in the 63 64 65 area yeah um i want to throw out another name 
that was big for stacks, which would be Sam and Dave. Oh, um, oh man. Right. So that would be light. So Sam and Dave came in with the Atlantic deal. They were licensed, signed by Atlantic, but licensed out to stacks right. because they fit their sound so well and got along with everybody so well there. Um, and virtually every song that Sam and Dave uh, released was written by uh, Isaac Hayes and David Porter, um, the great songwriting team at Stacks. Um, almost like a Liebert and Stoller, right, to Motown. Yeah. Or, or Liebert and Stoller were more of a um, real building, but uh, Holland Dozer is what I mean to say. Yeah, Holland Dozer, Holland. Yeah, yeah so uh, Hayes and Porter have become like a prolific songwriting team. I just like, hold on, I'm, this whole album, uh, Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave, is pretty much written by them. Um, Those dudes yeah. are, they're like 21 years old at the time, too. Yeah, and just prolific. I mean, great songs on here, and they just... It's almost like they, I can't believe how many songs they wrote. Also, during that time period, too, uh, B-A-B-Y, Baby by Carla Thomas, also yeah. written by Isaac Hayes. Oh, what a great tune. Um, so though, I feel like Isaac Hayes really comes in, too, and starts to also push that um, narrative in step with uh, the Civil Rights Movement, too, with just the way they're running the company and the songs that they're producing and the stance that Isaac Hayes starts to take of, um, like, Black Pride, right? Yeah, that and was... Isaac Hayes himself, like, we'll, pro- we'll talk about it later, but he, he started being a backing musician there at Stax in, like, 1962, like, pretty much right when they changed the name to Stax. He was, like, 18 or 19. He played keyboards and piano on 90% of everything that Stax ever put out. And like a lot of people know him now as like the as the former voice of Chef on South Park, but people don't realize like Isaac Hayes, as a songwriter and then as a performer, was a lar- just a gigantic figure in Southern soul music. Yeah, ab- Jeff is absolutely right. Um, one of the most I to to he's almost like a um, for me. I feel like he pushes. Um, the boundaries of soul music, the way that the Beatles were pushing pop music, uh, uh, yeah. almost. Uh, and for for that company, Stax to be pushing out stuff like that that was so innovative. Um, and I feel like he's mm. he's an integral part of that. Um, also, around ni- 1965, uh, Booker T from Booker T and the MGs, and he leaves to go to college. Um, <laughs> right. it's so, that, so crazy. Yeah, to uh, <laughs> I think study music theory. Right, At Indiana um, Indiana University. Yeah, which is very cool, and that's when really Isaac Hayes starts to play most of the organ parts on everything at uh, Stacks. So that's when he mainly steps in. Um, also around this time, so 65, Otis is a giant star. He's tracking hits, hits, hits on the R&B charts. He's starting to cross over. Um, he's really the only Stacks people, person that really tours first. He's the one that uh, really goes out on the national concert tour, which I think is also important. Um, and they also go up to Europe around 1965, which makes Otis Redding an even huger star because it brings soul music directly to um, Europe. And it packaged later another, another tour with all of the Stax artists. Um, but I thought it was really interesting, too, around that time when Otis went over there, the Beatles were so enamored by the Stax sound. They sent uh, personal limos to go pick up the whole crew, which was pretty cool. Yeah, because this was 1967. Yeah. So like. The Beatles had spent their first four or five years of their career, like just playing songs by Stax and Motown and other groups. So, like mm-hmm. now their heroes are over there in England. 
I'd like to also add real quick, I know we're kind of moving to 1965 in the Otis Redding story, but just just like two honorable mentions of artists that were on stacks at the time, um, around like 1964, kind of in that middle period, before things kind of like start to nosedive around 67, 68. Um, the Mad Lads um, was just a band that was signed to them. You can check out two different singles, The Sidewalk Surf and uh, Don't Have to Shop Around. Um, I listened to those tracks, and they were cool, man. Um, I thought I wrote down a little bit on what I thought of those, but apparently I did not. But, you know, good stuff, as well as um, I also wanted to name drop, what's her name? Oh, uh, Wendy Renee, whose real name was, uh, I think, Mary Frierson. But she was an artist that got signed to Stax, and I want to say it was Otis Redding was the one who vouched for her and like wanted her to have have her come on to the Stacks label. It was either Otis or it was Isaac. Yeah, Otis Isaac Redding was gave, one her, of the two. gave her stage name as well. Okay, yes, right, right, right. Um, but something that was really cool, when I was listening back to it, man, was there's a song called After Laughter Comes Tears that was sampled by Wu-Tang on the uh, the 36 Chambers album. The song called Tears, Tears but yeah. it's spelled te- mm-hmm. Tears with a C. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but yeah, just, just, just some cool stuff, man. And that's just, I think, too a nice sentiment to stacks in that way. That really goes to show you, man, that like the music that this record label was putting out has been so historical and so moving that, you know, you're looking at a guy like RZA from Wu-Tang who ends up sampling some of these, you know, stacks uh, songs, you know? So, I mean, it's, that's, what's so unique about this. And it's like, you know, they've, they've been sampled so much, man. Just every, like, you know, all the artists on stacks have been sampled so 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 much and i think that just goes to show you you know like that obviously you know they're doing something right you know uh and then to speak into 1965 you're also talking about atlantic sends in wilson pickett because they want wilson pickett to kind of be the next like stacks star and i mean they record they end up recording three singles uh in the midnight hour probably being the most popular of the three, as well as a song called Don't Fight It, and then 99 and a Half Won't Do. All, um, all co-written, I believe, by uh, Steve Cropper, the guitar player for Book of Teeth. Right, right. Um, but at the same time, Wilson Pickett was kind of notoriously kind of a difficult person to work Notorious. with. And, and he would end up getting, you know, getting the, you know, Jim Stewart's like, get this, get this guy out of here. He's a pain. I mean, dude, there's a story that Wilson Pickett was such a pain in the ass to everybody around him that he at one point felt bad about it and was trying to basically just like pay everybody off in the studio. Like he was trying to give them all a hundred bucks. Each. <laughs> like in other words, to be like, Hey, sorry for kind of being a dick in there. Here's a hundred bucks, you know? And then and that backfired on him anyway. Cause then they took that as an insult and they're like, yeah, fuck this guy. Like get this guy the fuck out of here. And that's, Which is why that's he would why, end up making the move to fame. Yeah. Uh, that's why know. Atlantic ends up moving all of their soul artists down to muscle shoals. And also why when uh, Aretha gets signed, they can't send her to stacks. Because Stax will no, no longer accept everybody. So that's really where you get the muscle, muscle shoals starts really brewing and starts hitting out uh, almost copycat sounding Stax records for Atlantic. Yeah. And that's how Atlantic starts to bypass um, around this time. They start to bypass Stax records by not even dealing with them anymore in their artists and start to build their own roster of soul that would be incredibly popular yeah. in the late 60s. And not for nothing, I definitely feel like like Muscle Shoals kind of took the wind out of the sails of Stacks. You know what I mean? At this point, I think 
in, know, in, a, in a white executive way, yeah. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, but so at that time, too, yeah. you get the, the tours start happening for Stax. Uh, their artist roster is better than it's ever been. They get Carla Thomas back. So they have Carla Thomas, Sam and Dave. Uh, you have Booker T and the MGs um, and pretty much their star, Otis Redding, who really starts to become a prolific songwriter at this time, too, um, and really starts getting well known for that. And he starts covering songs by, uh, I would say, yeah, like white musicians. He starts doing Satisfaction uh, in his live show. Um, I think Day Tripper as well by the Beatles. Um, and... This also is a ploy kind of more by him than Stax to move into a, a broader audience and to break through into the Billboard charts now instead of like just dominating the R&B charts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because of that, he starts to play. His big breakthrough would be 67 at the Monterey Pop Festival, where he really, truly breaks through to a white audience um, and shows like rock and rollers kind of what was happening at you know, in the South and with soul music and really pushes that boundary. Yeah. I mean, one, one statistic that I had heard about Otis was that all, every single one, every single of the 17 singles he released, released rather was in like the, the top 10 charts. Like it was yeah, like on the arm, crazy. Like that. Like every R&B single charts, one not the hot, on the top 100. Uh, right. 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 Also, we have to make the specification that, at the time, I mean, it's the time and the place, man, which which is, unfortunately, it's this, the, the, the racial South and everything. What you would end up having is you would have a lot of these these sort of segregated charts as well. And you would have to kind of climb up the charts of, like, the R&B chart or whatever. And then after you've earned that first chart, you would move to the pops, the pop charts, which is fucked up because most of the time, all the white people, all the white artists immediately went to the pop charts. You know what I mean? But the the black American soul singers and musicians and, you know, Motown and so on, they all had to climb those ranks of the segregated, like, black charts. And then it was like they almost, like, unlocked this achievement to be able to be on the white charts. And the most fucked up part about it is most of the music that's on the R&B charts is way better yeah, the Hot 100 than the stuff is like the fucking that's produced by, like, most of, the, most of the white people. Well, that's what I'm saying. Ta- it's just so stupid. It's just, wins, I don't know. Man. That's, so, but I mean, it goes to show you, man, time and place. Right. So, of course. to records coming in too. And this is another way that this is happening. So, they, they get to cherry pick what basically gets on the Hot 100 anyway because of national, national distribution. So, as Stacks being an independent, kind of, they recorded their own music, but you couldn't get it out unless a whole a giant corporation said it was going to be cool to do that. So that is also becoming a big head at that yeah. time, too. But um, you guys like uh, what do you you guys have seen me and Mike went to see uh, Otis Redding at Monterey Pop. Like for me, that is almost like the pinnacle of everything that performance Um, yeah, he's he's just he's a yeah, monster on stage. He's this big towering figure. He he has a voice that like it's so it's very loud and powerful, but it doesn't have this booming quality. It's it has more of like a shouty, sweet kind of shrieky quality at times. I mean, he is gone too soon, man, to say the least. Like we're gonna get to it, but yeah, Monterey Pop, like 
And he just sticks yeah. out because he is a soul artist. He's not a rock artist. He's not trying to do rock and roll. He's trying to forge this new path where it's like, we're not going to do boogie woogie stuff. We're going to yeah. play our music. Yeah. And he, from what I hear too, he was very much like, like kind of like in, a, in, a, in an early John Lennon way was like the lyrics don't necessarily matter. Like how does the music feel? You know? And I think, he was like he was really a feel guy, and also from everything that I had seen, it's pretty amazing, man. Because he had this ability to he heard everything in his head. He heard how he wanted everything to go, but he couldn't really. I don't think he was really good with writing music, so he would just go up to a horn player and literally just sing the lines to the horn players and be like, "I, I just just play it like this," and he would go, and he would sing it, and then that's how he he just controlled everything, man. I mean, he was. From what I hear, it's it's kind of like he had control over the band in the way that James Brown had control over a band, except he wasn't. Right, it's very reminiscent like James of Brown how James Brown musicians. and then Michael Jackson would direct their bands, where they had all their ideas about what they wanted to be going in the machinery of the backing track, but they themselves were not proficient musicians, I think. So yeah, they would just go up to the guys and be like, "Play this, da 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 da," right. and the guys would, you know. Just be able to communicate your artistic ideas. Right. Yeah. And to talk um, about that communication, um, that video, Monterey Pop, um, he, when he, he's, he conducts his band. Uh, he's like, play that part again. Do it again. And the band plays the part again right on cue. And it just, it kicks in. And that, that control over his band, I think, it just ends up controlling the whole audience in that moment. And it's a great, you could see the whole thing. He's like, Oh well, he's commanding the band like that, and then every everybody just instantly you feel gets sucked in. Um, and if you're watching, that's a great example of it in in yeah. the moment happening. Um, and to that clip too, I mean, uh, he's dancing in and out of that spotlight, and you see a silhouette. Um, it's mirrored in a thousand movies. Like I've seen it a bunch in movies. Um, it's definitely in the new A Star Is Born with Lady Gaga. They have a scene that is exactly almost shot for shot that Otis Redding scene. It's um that this just the the mo- the gravitas he has is so 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 huge and he was such a big star mm. for them. And again, the backing band for the Monterey yeah. Pop was Booker T the MGs, and in addition, the Memphis Horns, which was Wayne Jackson on trumpet and Andrew Love on sax. So like you have the the pros pros behind you playing during your performance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I want to say, at, when do I'm trying to remember? Right. Pretty much right after that, because that was that was picture. a huge festival. This so they is wanted to send their best. Right. The best. Out, yeah. But for the rest of 1967, they sent the young yeah. gun, young guns out on tour with him because the bar K's, the six dudes, they were all between the ages of 19 yeah. and 22 years old. Right. Oh, dude, there were some that were like 17. Some of them were still in high school, and what's funny is, I mean, not funny because it would end up being the cause of, you know, the the, the death of uh, a, f- a few of the Barkays and Otis himself, um, was that some of them were still in high school. So Otis Redding was, like, the type of band leader who was just like, listen, I'm going to buy a plane, so this way we can go, we can play the shows we're going to play, but you know what? We'll, ha- we're all- we'll own our own plane so you guys can be back home in time on Monday for you, you know, to be, to be ready to go Sunday night into Monday to go to school for Monday morning, you know? So that kind of shows you the type of person that Otis Redding was um, in terms of, in relation to his band, you know, I mean, obviously no one's perfect, but, um, but yeah, and the Bar case, man, I mean, another, 
it's like I mean we inevitably have to kind of get into the chapter of when we when we end up losing Otis Redding, but um, but man, what a, what a band that was just so ready to kind of just really take yeah, you know like um, I think Live at the Rock take off is, uh, like is the Marquez uh, that release and he does uh, can't turn you loose. It's, that's a great example of that that band just being completely on fire. Um, they do like a horn build up and they go down 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 down. And then kick right back in at like double double time, and it's it's unbelievable the with the speed. But um, that's a good that's a good uh, release. If I think if you want to check that band out, yeah. backing Otis instead of uh, Booker T, like at um, Monterey Pop. But around that time too, uh, right after Monterey, Otis really starts to yeah. take songwriting super seriously, and he goes on a um, a session writes thirty songs like outright too so he starts to become incredibly pro- prolific but um mm-hmm. and in that writing session writes uh sitting on the dock of the bay um so mike with steve cropper exactly mm-hmm. so that it's a big songwriting session that happens all at one point and it's almost a a monumental shift in the type of songs he was writing as well you know for me it's it's kind of like there's 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 kind of like this sort of mystery around those songs too. You know what I mean? Because it's like so close to his death. It's almost like I don't obviously I don't think Otis knew that he was gonna pass, but it's crazy how it was just like right before he dies, he just all of a sudden all this music just gushes out of him, you know, and like all this amazing, amazing music and material kind of comes into being, you know. But unfortunately, that would all come to an end. Um, and he was only 26 when he died too, which I didn't realize. No. I don't know why I thought he was older than 26, but you look at him and I don't, he doesn't look 26. You know what I mean? He looks like he's like 30 in the, in the, in the videos when he's like 22 or whatever, however old he is. Yeah. He really, and he, he really so did die me, like, but, like Luke said, um, right at the top of, right at the pinnacle of when he was becoming super famous and a very prolific songwriter. So. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, and this is kind of where we see the stacks story start kind of taking a pretty bad, a pretty bad nosedive. Cause I mean, you figure 67, they lose him. And then of course, 1968, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of just crazy shit that happens for them. But Atlantic ends up Michael, getting sold to Warner brothers. Tell, well, you uh, should tell the story. They about decide not how, to yeah, let's, let's talk about his death. Let's talk about Otis, Otis so, passing. So, so they were so basically it was like they were going on tour over the course of a weekend. They went from I was some I some they played a show somewhere in the south and then they they played a song in Cleveland and then they went to go they played a uh, a show in Cleveland and then they went to go play a show in Wisconsin somewhere I believe. And as they were taking off the problem was was the pilot that was piloting the airplane didn't have much experience in dealing with flying a plane in extremely cold weather conditions especially flying over water right that was the thing that that did him in because apparently not that i you know i'm not a pilot but from what i understand as you're as you're flying over open water in very very cold climates all of your dials and your readings and stuff you have to kind of make adjustments to them in order to compensate because it's the way that the the air is you know like the cold whatever so what ends up happening is is they're trying to come into land and the pilot straight up misses the runway. Like it's not like he's not even close and ends up crashing the plane into the water. And unfortunately killing all but one, I believe I think there was only one surviving member of the bar. Yeah, so that 
um, effectively that, that made it, it takes Stax's uh, biggest star and one of their be- best backing bands with Otis, um, Otis Redding and the Marquees. So that is really a big loss. Yeah, so the, so the majority of the Barkeys are dead, yeah. die in the plane crash. Jimmy King, the guitarist, Ronnie Caldwell, the organist, Phelan Jones, the sax player, Carl Cunningham, the drummer. Um, one of the members in the crash survived, Ben Colley, the trumpet player. And it was so cold in uh, Lake Montana in Wisconsin that, like, the scuba rescue team was only able to, like, be in the water for 15 minutes at a time. And he survived in the water in the wreckage of the plane for 20 minutes. And they, like, didn't even know how he made it out. And he was 20, 21 years old at the time. And then one of the members, uh, bass player James Alexander, wasn't on the same plane because the plane only had seven seats. So they just had room for um, the five of the six bar keys, Otis Redding and the pilot and um, like a business associate, their manager. So like side note, James Alexander, he was the father of producer Jazzy Faye. If you guys know that name, he produced a bunch of stuff in the mid 2000s. And he was named after Phelan Jones, who was his dad's best friend in the bar keys who died in that crash. But yeah, pretty pretty nuts because yeah, eighteen to twenty one ish years old, all those guys, and yeah, uh, I so yeah, man. Around that time, really is when everything starts to go sour. But also, it's a great rebirth for Stack. So Otis Redding passes away, um, and then what ends up happening is Atlantic Records, who is their distributor, who distributes nationally for them. Um, Stax thought they had like a handshake deal with Atlantic, but it had turned out, I believe in 65, uh, Atlantic ended up sending a contract over that um, Jim Stewart, right, uh, signs, and he just sends back. He doesn't really know what it is. Um, yeah, so basically, there, it's a clause yeah, he doesn't contract read it. that if Atlantic ever gets bought, that they have to now renegotiate with Stax. But because of that contract he had signed, everything up to that point that hadn't been distributed by Atlantic records was gone from Stax, And they had no longer, uh, they no longer had any monetary interest in those records. They could not use them. They could not release them. So that's the entire Otis Redding catalog gone to Atlantic. Uh, Carla Thomas gone. Um, Otis Redding. The license. Yep. The artist writing uh, or the artist, um, Sam and Dave, that was an Atlantic artist, gone. They can't use any of those anymore. Um, so basically, uh, Stax really doesn't know what to do. They end up getting bought out by Paramount, um, and they need to kind of completely rebrand themselves. So Atlantic Records steals, pretty much steals, the entire Stax catalog. They have nothing. Um, and this is when major changes happen. So uh, Al Bell steps up after um, the tour from Europe, and he takes over as A&R man from Steve Cropper. Um, and in this move, he ends up making um, some people on salary here. So he really installs the MGs as the backing band, uh, and he starts paying all of them a salary. Um, and he also installs Porter and Hayes on salary um, as a, the songwriters. So. These people, uh, Booker T and the MGs and Porter and Hayes, become known as the big six at Stax and start getting paid weekly and they get more appreciated. Um, the other thing that happens is Al Bell now makes the campaign in 68 for uh, the sole summer of 69. 
uh, where they were going to release, what is it, 20? I think it was I like 29, 27. <laughs> so yeah, crazy. 28 albums <laughs> and 30 singles in one year. Um, to, it, it's a crazy move. No other record company <laughs> would have ever done that, but they were shooting for the stars, and they had the talent, and they had proven it before, and they had to rebuild their catalog. So uh, people like Isaac Hayes now make a solo album. Uh, Steve Cropper gets solo albums. They release Carla Tom- new Carla Thomas record. Everybody kind of gets a record, um, and they really start to rebuild everything. So um, I think the importance of Isaac Hayes comes into play, and he is uh, kind of the new shining star for the company with his new hit album that comes out that summer, Hot Buttered Soul. Uh, we talked about in the show before, but I'm going to let my man Jeffrey really explain why this album is so important, why it moves the fun, like why it moves soul music progressively forward, and I think why it saves Stacks. So, Jeffrey, let's hear it. So, Hot Buttered Soul was, yeah, it was Stacks's kind of gamble on on Isaac Hayes as a solo artist. It was his second solo album, but this was much more of an experimental record kind of in line with the Jimi Hendrix music where it mixed in a lot more of the psychedelic elements of music. And the record itself is only five songs long, but they're all these like monsters. Oh, you're right. Four songs. The the fifth song is just a single cut of, of the first song. Um, So yeah, it's four songs long and it's like using things that, that stacks at the time hadn't really been using a lot on their records, which was like, orchestral instrumentation and a lot more of like the that uh funky wah-wah guitar and this record used all the musicians from the stacks uh roster so instead of the bar keys after the otis writing plane crash they reformed with new members so this was like the first major project that that new lineup played on they had the memphis horns adding in with them um booker t was not on this record which was a rarity at the time for Stax records but this was fully an isaac hayes thing and it just like to take a songwriter who's been having success like behind the curtain of a lot of artists for five to eight years and then for him now to have this great success front of the stage singing playing piano and organ is like was pretty remarkable at the time because a lot of people would cut their teeth as songwriters for two or three years and then they'd be like 23 24 and then they would make their own records but isaac hayes by all accounts was like in line to be just like a studio session pro for life but i think it was really the death of otis redding that like made everybody at stacks look around and just be like well who do we have here that can carry us into the future and isaac hayes with that guy because his music is such a departure from the earlier stacks up is so much more like setting the template for funk music alongside artists like uh Sly and the family stone, like Isaac Hayes stuff mm. is very underappreciated and underrated in the current day, I believe because his like first five albums are all these like masterpieces of this new psychedelic funky soul. Like, uh, it, 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 the comparison at Motown would be uh, what's that guy's name? Norman Whitfield, right? That producer, right? But it's not even a, it's not even close to that. Like he doesn't even come close to what Isaac Hayes is doing, right. in my opinion. Like 
Hot Buttered Soul ends up sounding like the, the it's like the uh, soul equivalent of Abbey Road, I think, for the 60s. It just blows everything wide open. Um, and what's interesting, too, is a lot of the songs on that, he's such a prolific songwriter, but he didn't really write. I think he wrote one of the songs on that record, the uh, second song. Yeah, he might have written two of them, but yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Just one. Yeah. I, I thought that was an interesting choice for him yeah. too, because like the more hyperbolic syllabic mystic is the one song you wrote. Yeah, that, <laughs> right. And I think it's important too that with this new <laughs> like reforming of stacks, like Isaac Hayes also takes on um, the almost like the new image of uh, like what would be like Black Pride and holding yourself up to uh, like he would present himself to be like an image of everything like that he could be so he could be oh not like a i wouldn't say like a, a I, yeah i'd say like a role model but he was just um presenting himself just like proudly, an icon maybe um, like the an way icon he, for... he dressed like so... the the things he said in his songs uh the stature that he walked around with uh we talked about johnny cash last week um as being that figure like isaac hayes has carried himself differently um and presented himself so strongly so that people could not tear him down and that was in step with having pride for yourself and with again all these things happening you have the in step like we talked all that tragedy that happened uh martin luther king was also killed in 68 before the soul explosion happened so you have this great um effort for the black um people in that town uh because Martin Luther King was assassinated in the same town that Stax is operating in and recording in. Um, so I think there's a, um, like, almost like they want to carry that forward and push his legacy on. And I feel like um, he just took that on musically and, and very much presented. There's a great interview in Jet Magazine at the time with Isaac Hayes uh, right after that, I think 70 or 71, that really explains, like, everything where he was coming from. And, um you know, I just, it's something that I, I really appreciate in his music. And, you know. Yeah, I, I know that I think it was, you know, it was, about the, it was about the time, yeah, that um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And there were, like, riots happening in Memphis and stuff like that. And wh- one of the uh, the techniques, I guess, if you'd call it that, to try to maybe settle the people of of the city of Memphis down was they would actually have Isaac Hayes go on like local radio stations and like tell people to like calm down and like stop writing and stop and stop all that stuff. Um, so I think that in itself just shows the power that Isaac Hayes kind of had as this sort of leading figure in, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily politically per se, but in a sense, you know what I mean? He became kind of this like, and I also want to the point civil out rights movement in that vocal way. You know? style also is, uh, it starts to switch up like kind of oh, the way yeah. stacks, like, cause he can like sing softly, um, and still like bring his point home so well. So I think that was like another, like almost, um, like it, it made him so so powerful because he could say what he needed to say without yelling it, and you still got it through so well. Yeah. Like it was so like poignant in his his quietness. Sometimes, like in the beginning of by the time I get to Memphis, it's so emotional, and he just takes you. He'll he's able to take. I mean, I I sit down and listen. Yeah. To it, he'll take me on the journey every time, and it's just and he's not yelling at you. He's he's letting you know, you know. 
Yeah. 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 In <laughs> contrast to Otis, where Otis is much more high energy, you know, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, he, Isaac Hayes definitely changes it. There's a great story that I had heard. Um, actually, it's, I want to say it was, I think it was Booker in the, in the forward from Booker T, but he was saying that there were two limousines that would travel around Memphis, right? One of them was owned by Elvis Presley. One of them was owned by Isaac Hayes. And the only way to know was by looking at the license plate because Isaac <laughs> Hayes' license plate was, set, was a vanity plate and it said Moses for Black Moses on it, you know? And I just think that's so great, man. Like, what, like, what, an, what he kind of was the embodiment of soul. Like, also, if you want to talk about image and stuff, he was bald. And th- that might not seem like a big deal now, but at the time, do you know what I mean? Like, pop stars, it was just, he just had a different thing about him. Like, he... He had a completely different vibe, and he, he didn't have, with like, like this wild, cha- crazy hair. You know, he was this bald guy, and he came out, like, bare-chested. <laughs> you know what I mean? And everything was, you know, yeah, yeah. man, like, looking, look, like, very, very sexual in that way. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, he really was that embodiment of, 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 of soul and early funk, and definitely I think that if you're talking about origins of funk, you know, you have to tip the hat to, like, the Collins brothers who came in and started working with, you know, like the original, or the, like the JBs working with James Brown and what James Brown was doing equally as much, though. I think that psychedelia and like maybe, you know, if you look at a band like Parliament Funkadelic, like you can kind of see the melding of those two worlds where you have this sort of Isaac Hayes who's not afraid to give you this like sort of sweet sort of melody, but that slappy kind of vamping on the one kind of thing that, that the JBs and James Brown would give you in the narrative of, of funk. Isaac Hayes is right up there, man. It's, it's right. You, you can't really argue with that. You know what I mean? Like, so he was there when it was written. Like, you know, like we're talking was, like the success that he know? had with Hot Lord Soul. That was a million seller, over a million seller. Um, they Stacks noticed that they still weren't getting a ton of money in around 1970. Um, so what ends up happening is they take out a loan, um, and basically Al Bell steps in and buys in the company outright, um, and then becomes the CEO of the company. Um, so then at that time, Stax becomes yeah. a very powerful black owned business, which it wasn't, um, it was virtually like almost unheard of at the time, and especially in the, um, record industry. Uh, so Al Bell steps them up in that way. And then they become, they, I mean, pretty prominent at this time. Like it's, it's really going to happen for them. It looks like. So this is like the other major change where they go again to kind of become, it, they want to install themselves almost as a major as, as a major record label on par with Atlantic and all those CBS and stuff. And this is their, their ploy to do that. So to own all of their stuff. So it's completely owned by them. Right there around 1970 when Al Bell buys the record label, unfortunately though, like he changes a lot of their business practices behind the scenes and how they treated the marquees, barquets, uh, backing bands. And a lot of those guys quit like Steve Cropper and Booker T Jones. Both were just like, no, yeah, no, he... we're just not getting our credit. And like, you're treating us like hired help. Like we're, we're good. I can't remember the name of the guy, but there was, uh, there was somebody that Al Bell ended up taking on hiring. I think taking the post of a and R, but he was kind of, kind of like an enforcer for Al Bell. Cause you know, at the time, there's a lot of civil unrest and all that stuff. There's rioting in the streets literally happening and stuff. But then also, you know, things get a little things get a little weird. I remember hearing that there was a story that um, that especially uh, Al Jackson Jr., the drummer, 
uh, for Booker T and the MGs actually ended up having kind of like a thing, even with Donald Duck Dunn at one point, because he had heard that it was, and it was around the time that um, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. You know, you know, Stax was a model for integration. Absolutely. But, you know, racism and all that stuff, man. I mean, when you have like these really, really big, big, big world things happening, it weasels its way into sometimes, it, you know, evidently it weasels its way into, in, you know, into Stax and stuff, too. So but to what I'm trying to say is, is that that whenever Al Bell hired on this guy, I can't remember the life of me, his name. Crap. But I know that even things got skewed a little bit with Isaac Hayes, too. This is kind of where Isaac Hayes starts kind of being like, eh, I don't know, because Al Bell was, like, signing deals with, like, theaters and stuff. I think he invested in, like, a baseball team at one yeah, point. Yeah, he got indicted. Like, like, he like, started branching out like into all these other business ventures that ended up. Yeah, things got, yeah. Things got pretty um, wonky once so, he took over. Like you know? Mike said, kind of the exodus of Booker T and the MGs. Uh, highlight the album, one of the last albums they released on that uh, lab- on the Stax label. Uh, Macklemore Avenue, Beatles cover album. Right, and it really, that record is so, you know, it's almost, it's, it's such a great play on like what was happening at Stax because it's literally, uh, it's, it's an instrumental take on the Beatles' Abbey Road. Uh, the covers and imitation of it, and they do these great instrumental uh, versions of it that are all kind of medley together. Um, if you want to check out a great version uh, of um, the song "Something," you can hear how the Stones really ripped off the end jam uh, for "Can't You Hear Me Knock" and released, I think, a year later. Um, it sounds almost like exactly like it, even like the guitar hooks. Um, it's such a great record, and it's such a great farewell note for. Booker T and the MGs on that label. Um, so I want to shout out that record. So Booker T leaves, um, and the artists that really come in end up being kind of like Al Bell artists that come in. Uh, the Staple Singers um, come in around that time, and they have great success with their song, I'll, uh, take, I'll take You, you there. there. Written by yeah, Al Bell. Yeah, written. Exactly. So he had his hands in a lot of stuff, and, and you know, even though the label changed and uh, you have like different star artists now, like the Staple Singers and Isaac Hayes, um, it's it, and it sounds the sound starts to change at Stacks a little bit because they start using outside studios such as Ardent in Memphis. Um, you still you get like a different sound moving forward, but uh, different, but it's still a solid stable of uh, artists. And then at that time too, I would say it's still some of the peak soul music that was being released at the time and the most innovative. Um. But with all these bad things, I mean, you also get like a, like a record I was talking to you guys about earlier too. You get like the Dramatics coming in in 71, 72. Um, and they were um, not even from the South. They were up from uh, Detroit. So they were starting to really pull from all different places now, you know, become a more diverse company. And like Mike said too, moving out into even different business ventures. Yeah, I mean, Al Bell would go on to even form, uh, like, Party Records, where he would sign and release, like, an early, like, Richard Pryor album and stuff. Um, I think the last great hurrah, maybe for the Al Bell era, is when they do the uh, Watts Tax concert, which they dubbed, like, the Black Woodstock. And it was... Huge it was success. <clears throat> excuse me, it was a pretty big success, you know, for them and all that. Um, you know, they had a lot of, you know, they had a lot of people on the bill. It was, yeah. I mean, it's called the Black Wood- Woodstock, you know, like they, that's called that for yeah, a that reason because it was very, very much held in uh, Los successful. Angeles to commemorate know? the seven year anniversary of the Watts riots in LA, 
which until the 1992 LA riots after the Rodney King verdict mm-hmm. was the worst riots in Los Angeles. And the Watt stacks, have you guys seen the documentary? I, I have never seen it, but I want to seek that out. I've seen a lot of clips from Same. it. Um, no. Because uh, definitely the one I've seen that's most, like, that I've seen the most is uh, Rufus Thomas doing his 1970 release, Do the Funky Chicken. Um, and the the entire crowd storms the, uh, the the football stadium and they all start dancing. And it's like one of the most, like, it's just such a great moment. I think it represents that whole concert because it's just such a beautiful, everybody dancing. Yeah, and it, it was such a large crowd. And, like, to commemorate a terrible event that happened seven years earlier with the Watts riots, like this concert, they didn't allow police security to be there and they hired all their own security, which was all black people. And like it for, for in 1972, a group of 110,000 or so people, predominantly black people to have just a peaceful gathering was like, people didn't think that was possible back then. And it just shows it was it's not maybe it's not black people all right maybe it's fucking society that is the fucking problem all right yeah and it was one of the lo- i think it was the largest or second largest gathering of uh black people in america that had ever happened at that point, uh, yeah after the crazy. march on washington right yeah which such a it's such a beautiful yeah. moment um and yeah. also to isaac hayes like headlines that show um, and he's coming off that giant Shaft uh, soundtrack fame, which is another huge success for Stax. Um, so it really does look like the company is like doing really well at this time, even though we know in hindsight that a lot of bad things are happening. Yeah, and the the pro- it's like about 1972 where um, I think yeah, Bell ends up buying out. Stewart, and not, also not to get too far ahead though let's just backtrack real quick um uh estelle axton ends up leaving around 1970 that's about the time that she ends up bailing out it was kind of a shady deal i think jim stewart ended up kind of like talking her into leaving in some yeah, sort really of unsavory kind of like way direction that bell um, was wanting to push the company but in. yeah so Right, right. And she really, I mean, to her credit, man, she is she is described as being like the soul of Stax Records. So she she seems to have taken on this very like sort of motherly like role, even within the within the, the, the you know, the record label and stuff. So by this point, she's already gone. And then Bell buys out Jim Stewart, which sidebar real quick jim stewart ends up like leaving with all these millions and then like reinvesting his money like like 15 years later and literally like losing his children's like fund money kind of thing like he ends up like screwing over like pretty much his kids yeah as a result of like some sort of you know not great uh not great business uh deals but anyway um and this is yeah and then so basically they kind of deal with cbs or Al Bell cuts a, cuts a deal with CBS with the president, Clive Davis. But then, as fate would have it, and, you know, these shady record label executives would have it, this just in, Clive Davis was spending fucking company money on his own personal interests <laughs> and stuff, like paying for his son's bar mitzvah and shit like that, like, with company money. And, like, long story short, he ends up getting the boot. So, with that happening, then Al Bell's kind of like, more or less hung out to dry because without 
Clive Davis kind of driving the force behind the CBS Records distribution deal for Stacks. CBS, you know, management changes a little bit, and yeah. CBS kind of like loses interest in Stacks like altogether. And I, and that's pretty so, much the nail. This is kind of when Stacks records, my take, man. like, well, what I see kind of what happened, what I think happened is when Stacks. Well, is going to make this move. They want to become a giant record, you know, label with you know a rock label, and uh, they had Enterprise that um, Isaac Hayes was on and Volt and that the Dramatics were on. So they want to really expand their market out. Um, and when they go to that giant distribution deal with CBS, I think in a way CBS was snuffing out competition at that point um, in trying to kill a lot of the major labels. It's the same thing Atlantic did to them um, in 67 is they pretty much just, you know, raw dealed them. And uh, CBS did that hard. And then when that happened, um, Stax had a deal with them, but they basically just weren't distributing Stax records anywhere. So people were asking, why can't I get the Stax release in the store? Why can't I get this release? Um, and CBS ended up kind of just snuffing them out. And um, if you're a fan of the band Big Star, R.I.P. This is the reason. Yes, this is the reason you could not. This is what reason why uh, Big Star's records failed. You couldn't find them in the store because Big Star were signed to Ardent Records, which was a subsidiary of Stacks. Yeah, they had a records. distribution uh, deal dur- with Stacks. Right, and out through the CBS deal, that's why you couldn't find the big star records in in stores. So this was happening. It smushed out a lot of bands, a lot of artists and a lot of competition. And it was really the nail in the coffin for, for stacks. Yeah. I mean, there's the, Oh, yeah. I mean, there's the, Oh, we got some. (laughs) All right. Uh, I mean, there's stories about the way that they would do these distribution deals and shit too, man. That was so shady. It was like, you'd have to send the record label a thousand records, right? But the record label would then almost expect, well, not almost, they would expect a free 300 records that you would have to send them on top of it that they would just distribute to say local DJs and so on. The thing is, is that right there out the gate, there's 300 records that you basically just had to give away for free. So if you're if these records don't pick up and and sell off and stuff like that, you're basically losing money. But there were I think it was with Paramount when they were with Paramount. There's stories about how when the Paramount deal fell through and they were trying to go through distribution with CBS, Paramount was literally mailing back pallets of unopened records that they had sent to Paramount that Paramount just never distributed. You know what I mean? You have thousands of thousands of albums, man. And you know, man. There's a lot of shady characters in this story and stuff like that. But, I mean, not for nothing, man. I I think sometimes you got to call shit what it is. It's just, it's a little too odd to me that, like, when Al Bell comes in and he really rebuilds this company from the ground up. Not saying he didn't have any shady sort of business dealings and other ventures and stuff like that. But when you see this record label, man, becoming reestablished pumping out all this great music and it just so happens to be a black owned record label uh in the time of the racist white south i mean do you call it a coincidence when all of a sudden all these like fucking white superpowers kind of swoop in and are like stomping out the competition man because or if not stomping out the competition trying to find a way to own the competition in order to have control over it rather than maybe having like you know a young um 
like an entrepreneur in the form of an Al Bell trying to actually create something that was culturally really, really good for the African-American population that lived in Memphis at the time, you know? I mean, it so, happened to a lot of... Uh, call me, I'm not major, to get into conspiracies, man, but, you know, too, I mean... Uh, like James... Yeah, like James Brown owned, like, tons of radio yeah, stations. Yeah, there's a lot of that block, uh, blocking And was a happening, major you know? player in the music business around the turn of, of 1970 as well. And then pretty soon lost everything in uh, a similar similar kind of fashion, which is pretty upsetting. But to the legacy of stacks, like yeah. Mike was kind of saying earlier, is what you were kind of left with is um, a great, example of uh you know just a great canon of of black music that was happening at that time and it's a, such a great sound um like mike said too the sampling that is still making the music so modern and in our lives all the time um like uh, like mike was saying with the samples i was listening to um ab winehouse's uh you know i'm no good the other day and that drum hook it was really great and then i just happened to put on um, Carla Thomas and Otis Redding and uh, the song Tramp, it's, you know, the drum sound is very similar. It sounds like a re-recorded kind of play on it. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's just beautiful that that music keeps playing on. And, um, you know, even if it's not the actual song, that drum beat, that, that heartbeat of it lives on in modern music today. And it's, it's, it's such a beautiful thing. It keeps playing on, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it 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 permeates all American culture, you know, and it is really sort of this kind of, you know, it's almost I don't want to I don't want to say this and have it sound the wrong way, but it's almost kind of this romantic sort of American story where, you know, there's like this like the rise and fall and there's but there's then there's the rebirth and then inevitably it falls once more. You know what I mean? It's kind of like this. uh you know, you can't like make this shit up, man. This is like, yeah, because if, we, if we talk like, about the history really of stacks like, after like, life, 1975, you know, there's really not much to talk about. Like it existed in a form, but like not really, because uh, in like 1976, Al Bell is arrested for bank fraud and he's eventually acquitted. But then the label now sells themselves to fantasy records. So now fantasy records kind of has a deal like they had in the 60s where like, Stax doesn't even own their masters anymore. Fantasy owns their masters. So, like, they're putting out some stuff in the late 70s, but nothing is getting any traction. Nothing is becoming a success. And even if it was to be a success, they don't own it. So, like, they're, in a way, like, not working to make these songs successful. And then Stax, like, becomes a reissue label. Like, they aren't putting out any new stuff, essentially, in, like, 1982 on... They sell the building that East Macklemore Avenue in uh, 1981. They sell it to like a church for a hundred dollars or like whatever the minimum like tax number you can sell to somebody. And then the buildings tore down in 1989. And so stacks exist like putting out reissues of the stuff that they own for like that brief period from 1968 to 1972 so they're just playing out like new editions of those records. And then thankfully in 2003, around then, they rebuild on the same site as the old studio. They rebuild the building to be a replica and they open up the Soulsville Museum, which is the museum to Southern soul music. So you can go in there now and you can walk around and it looks like the old studio. It's, it, it's not the same thing. They built the 
place up again, but supposedly it's the same, uh, same structure and, you know, like the same size rooms and all that. And you can see them. If people watch the inauguration uh, concert, the, you know, a couple weeks ago, they had uh, John Legend. Oh no, not John Legend. Justin Timberlake did his performance there at the Soulsville museum. So they start off in the recording room and then, during the song, they walk out into the lobby. You can see how that's set up. And then they're performing the rest of it out in the streets. So that was kind of cool to see. But, like, yeah, Stacks, like, exists in a way, but really only in name. Like, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, I think, are officially signed to Stacks, but they have, like, a co-deal with another record label. And, like, Ben, Ben, uh, Ben, uh, what's his name? Ben Harper released an album or two through Stacks in it's- the past decade. And, like, Soul Live made a couple albums there since the 2000s. But, like, it exists in name, but not really, like, it's not a real record label, Yeah, I, guess. I would say it's a, uh, uh, it, it exists today in vanity form, so that if you pick up a record and it has it on it, you would assume that it's soul music to some extent. Um, mm. So it's kind of, it's owned outright by some major record label. I don't even know who it is, but mm. um, it's a vanity label it doesn't exist as a working enterprise like you don't have like a songwriting crew and there's not a backing band anymore it's not it's not anything like it used to be it's more of a um uh, it's almost like insulting to put it on the record because it's not stacks it's it's a it's basically Mm. just a stamp that says this is soul music now right i guess um and And it's kind of crazy because you think that first four ish Mm -hmm. years from like 1957 to 1961 when they're satellite records and then only until like 1974 did they have success. So like you're not even talking about a 20 yeah. year period. And that's it's almost like the the um, the splash of the Beatles, right. right? It's like a short burst of time, but it's like so much happens yeah. in there, and it's so much growth of music in 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 that time period. That's that's a crazy thing to think too. And stark contrast, you have. You know, you have Motown, who I yeah. believe was sold to, like, CBS in the early 70s. And Motown still exists today. There's tons of people mm-hmm. on the Motown you... roster. And, Al Bell, you know... actually, uh, the head of Stax, goes on to work for Motown right. at some point, too. So he... I think I think Al Bell also discovered a tag team who made the song. That's there, exactly correct. <laughs> but... For for all that tragedy that really happened, I, I just wrote the story too as like um, yeah, man. the story of a black owned business. What happens when you when you let the yeah. artists control what's going on? You get uh, optimally some of the best music. And um, mm. like I spent the last you know yeah I, yesterday I spent I spun eight records. They were all stacks releases, and <laughs> I was. You spun them simultaneously, stacked on yes. top of one another. <laughs> stacks on stacks. Um, yeah, yeah, that's why it's called stacks, bro. I, stacks I listened, on stacks. Yeah, guys. I, I kind of listened somewhat chronologically in what I had, so I started with like Otis Redding's earlier stuff and then moved all the way to last record I listened to last night was Hot Blurred Soul. Um, and it's just that that expansion there is is really like listening to the Beatles' Please Please Me and then all the way up, because if you think it's kind of the same people, um, creating this music, and even though they have different, you know, artist names on the records, um, that is what's so profound to me. And um, I think this is a history that people should know. Like everybody knows the Beatles, because this music is so important. It is what started the Beatles. Um, so 
I think everybody should really, you know, get into that Memphis sound and take a trip to Soulville, USA, man. Take a trip on down. Do we have to wrap up? Do we have yeah um, maybe some suggestions? Yeah, like, do you man. Guys have, like yeah, maybe yeah. like three favorite records from Stacks that you want to throw out there for people um, to check yeah, out? Yeah, I'll throw three out. Um, I'll pick uh, the dramatics. Um, what you see is what you get. It's a later release from Stacks on Volt. Mm-hmm. I think it's from 1972. Um, I really like this release because it doesn't really super sound like uh, you know early day Stacks. It's a represents later day. Um, the singing on it is great. It's got great bass singing, and um, my favorite jam on it is uh, "Hot Pants in the Summertime," which I hope is on Jeff's summertime playlist. You um, know it, man. I just really love that release. Um, another one I would point out <laughs> is uh, "Black Moses" by Isaac Hayes. Um, I believe that's also seventy-two or seventy-one, um, but that mm-hmm. release is great. I really love. Uh, Never Fall in Love Again, the Burt Bacharach cover on there. Um, the first song is the Jackson 5 cover of Never uh, Never Can Say Goodbye. Um, so good. Um, that's that's so epic and soulful. Um, and then, yeah, Ike's rap on there, too. Uh, and Black Moses has one of the best fold-outs I've ever seen on a record where you can get to see him uh, dressed up like Black Moses. It's amazing. Um, third mm. record... I'd shout out is um I'm gonna I'm gonna shout out this one. I don't think a lot of people it's not like the Otis Redding a lot of people go to, but uh the immortal Otis Redding, I think it was the first one released after his death, and it has the original uh hard to handle on there, the song that the Black Crows would make very famous in the nineties. But um Hard to Handle on there is like one of, it's probably my favorite stack song of all time. Cause for me it's almost like you can really hear the studio so well. Um, and the drum beat on there is one of the fattest drum beats of all time. So for me, that's really why I like that. Also, that record has, I think, a thousand miles away on it, um, which is also one of my favorite Otis songs. So those are three I would shout out. Um, and uh, yeah, Stacks Records, guys. What do you guys got? Hmm. Yeah, I would probably... I have to say, man, and I, I didn't say it earlier, but like one album, I know it's kind of like, uh, okay, yeah, obviously, but like just is that the, where they're the album yeah. coming the by cover? Sam and Dave. <laughs> I mean, that album is so dope, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, even the song Hold On, I'm Coming, man, like, it's, it's, I listen back to it, man, and it's still like, I listen to it and it's still just so fresh and exciting. Like, it's, <laughs> there so, they are. it's just groove so hard. Yeah, yeah. It grooves so hard, man. It's so exciting. I love the dynamic between Sam and Dave, too, where they're, oh, like, you say, kind of you say constantly competing with one like another. They kind of edge each other on the whole time. It's a song you know? line instead. Oh, yeah, man. And they'll, like, yeah, and they'll shout back at each other. There's a lot of the call and answer stuff, you know. Um, those big horns, if I, if, if somebody asked me to give like a, uh, uh, maybe like a non Otis Redding track that I think really embodies the spirit of stacks, it would be the single, hold on, I'm coming like that, like the same way with soul man too. the, I'm a soul man. Like, it's like, they just give you these great horn lines, man. So that album for sure, for sure. Um, with Otis. I mean, for me, like, 
Otis Blue, like you can't really you can't really fuck with that record. Like it's just it's so good. I mean, I like I like the first album too, Pain in My Heart. Like that one's, you know, obviously killer. He, you know, and then uh the great Otis Redding sings uh sings soul ballads, uh tell the truth. But for me, if you go on if you go on Spotify, this there's Otis Blue in mono on there, and it just like it sounds great, man. It's like just such a timeless record. Um and to touch on Otis too, man. The Dock of the Bay, one thing I love about that song, I know I'm kind of, like, skipping around here, but I'm just so excited because, like, even Dock in the Bay, man, like, when he whistles, there's just such a, there's just such a, like, a childlike innocence to kind of that thing. You know what I mean? Like, just the vibe of the whistling is, like, so, I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of a sucker for, for stuff like that. I think that's just such a, such a great part. Um, and let me think. I mean... Wilson Pickett, dude, you know, like in the midnight hour, like it's just, it's just so good. Like you can't, you got to give credit where credit's due, especially with Wilson Pickett. I don't think, I don't think that entire album was recorded at Stax. Just the three, right? Yeah, like the three singles at Stax were recorded in Stax, yeah. but those three songs, if you want to hear like great Stax sound, great example for of a sure. Stax song, it really. I just mean, it's has only the three on that album, or... and the sound on it, like Jeff was saying too, is like super square and angular on it. Uh, I love it. Yeah, the only other tune that's not on that album, but that was recorded in Stax, was ninety nine and a half won't do that is on the album The Exciting Wilson Pickett, but um, that track was already, it was also rather recorded at Stax, uh, oh. you know. So, oh, I was so yeah, man, those would probably be my thing. Oh, also, shout out to Albert So, King. like, my my three real favorites we already Oh, sorry, all right, go, 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 go. To reiterate, Macklemore Avenue by Booker T. MG's The Beatles cover album, Hot Butter Soul by Isaac Hayes, and uh, King and Queen by Carla Thomas and Otis Redding. But the three I will mention in addition to those, uh, Carla Thomas's 1966 album Carla, which has the big hit B A B Y Baby on it. Uh, Albert King's Born Under a Bad Sign, which I think was 1968, which has Booker T and MGs playing its backing band. And the third I'll throw out there from 1971, the first black person in a non-actor category to win an Oscar, the theme from Shaft. So the Shaft soundtrack by Isaac Hayes is would be my third one to check out. Um. I got one more I, I forgot I wanted to throw out. Um, mm. I forgot to mention this dude's name yeah, in here. Uh, we're talking about Wilson Pickett. He was a member of this band called the Falcons. And along uh, with him was uh, Eddie Floyd. And Eddie Floyd was a major Not yeah, a major recording artist for Stax um, at the time of like Otis Redding um, and onward. But uh, I just wanted to throw out the album Knock on Wood by Eddie Floyd. It is so solid and uh, one of the pinnacle sax releases um tons of people covered knock on wood check out the original uh by eddie floyd it's also one of my favorite album covers it's chopping wood and another another one we talked about earlier um unfortunately like stacks doesn't really own it it's all atlantic owned but it's a great compilation worth checking out on streaming services like spotify or apple etc if you want to listen to what stacks really was Check out the compilation called Stax Volt, the complete singles, 1959 to 1968. It's like 245 songs, and it's like everything you could ever want from that decade from Stax and Volt. Yeah, great, great shout outs, guys. Great, great shout outs. 
Oh, okay. One more, guys. Last one. Yeah. Oh, I do want to give... <laughs> I have another one, too. Not I'm thinking about. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. But also, uh, shout out to the philosopher of soul himself, Johnny Taylor. Um, you can check out his first album. Uh, the hit on that one was I Had a Dream. And then there was another song, I Got to Love Somebody Baby. Um, those two songs... That I got to love somebody baby somebody's baby is the opening track on the first Johnny Taylor album Wanted One Soul Singer that's the title of the album but then uh, the other single I Had a Dream is also on that record so he's another one definitely to check out there's so ma- there's just so many great artists on Stacks man like it's just it's it's unreal cool. who but, we talk about next week but um but yeah man James Brown Godfather I think. Godfather the sold hardest, himself um, the hardest we working band we want show, to do show business James Brown soul brother uh, number Miss- one. No, I was going to say Mr. Please, Please, Please himself. The man. <laughs> oh, you're going to say Mr. Dynamite? <laughs> oh, the hardest working man in show biz. Mr. <laughs> Dynamite. I love those intros, man. Those intros get me. Yeah. So good. Um, so, yeah, we'll do James Brown uh, next week. So, I think this was a great lead into our like Black History Month Stacks specials, records. man. And I'm really looking forward Stacks to uh, you know the rest of the month, man. Doing some deep stacks. Give it a listen. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. If you have any questions or comments, get in the garage podcast at gmail.com. You can follow Luke at Julius underscore records. Jeff at W D L A music. D Y L music. Thank you. Sorry. What do you love about Um, music? Me at the beard Morrison. Um, And what works for you? Mike's podcast. Yep. my podcast yeah and um we have some exciting news in the future oh, so, it, so we, this is to, just uh, news about some news. fun moves and uh bring i think you, you know, i think we can say <laughs> it right i think i don't know building yes. sexual tension i'm building te- i'm building can we say it i don't know we're well we're, we're put it this long story short george our good friend george bruderman who was from the feel feelings podcast and was on one of our earlier episodes check out the george bruderman episode um yeah, well, we're in the works of trying to sign on to a uh, podcast network, and hopefully that will, oh, you know, open up some doors for us and kind of yeah, get and, things uh, flowing work and work with a bunch of other you know get us some more uh, listenership and stuff like that. So we're we're looking forward to that, and uh, yeah, yeah, and if, we'd like to start incorporating video uh, at some point. But you, you know, if this pandemic could wrap that up here, we would be pretty happy about that. <laughs> yeah, remember to wear your mask. Also, just as a reminder, I would just like to say this. I've heard like some weird audio glitches in some of our podcasts. We're doing all this stuff remotely. Be mindful. We're doing what you don't pay for. Only sometimes they're weird. We lose each other sometimes and stuff. So (laughs) we just ask. (laughs) Yeah, that should be the ad. And do mine cut off? Mine cut off. You get what you don't pay for, but you know, you you can make a podcast. Anchor, enjoy the scribble. (laughs) I know. I know. I heard you chiming in and out, man. New logo. Hey, drop yeah. a new logo. Yeah, oh, yeah. It. Right. it moves, though. You see? New logo. It's just a scribble. <laughs> yeah. We're going dro- to get dropped by the Let's just change the color from shitty. purple to blue and yellow. Oh, no, more, no more free podcasting for you. <laughs> yeah, I know. going to be like it. Thank you. Anchor. No, more, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. No, we do. Uh, I mean, all we hail the scribble. We, obviously, we love it. <laughs> all hail the scribble. Thank you. Yes. Uh. All hail the squiggle. All hail the squiggle. You got to do this with your hands. Anyway, 
All right, guys. Well, great episode this week. Whoa. I look forward to next week. This has been a presentation from the Wasted Robot Network. For more information, and links to other shows please visit www.wastedrobotrecords.com slash podcasts.